Welcome to Porch Stories. I'm Billy Bailey. I'm Larry Hakey. And I'm Mallory Gibson. This week we interviewed Dr. Alex Colvin, Public Programs Curator for the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Billy was unable to join us this week, but Mr. Larry and I had a great conversation with Dr. Colvin. We discussed the strong nature of Creek society and the importance of the Creek mother and her side of the family's role in teaching their children how to be valuable members of the tribe. Now, going on, who were the two parties involved in the Creek War? Yes. Yeah, so, well, the first thing I want to point out is that frequently you'll hear people say, oh, the Creek War was the U.S. versus the Creeks or things mm-hmm. like that. That is not the case. The that Creek is untrue. War, that is untrue. The Creek War is a civil war. And so there's two sides, and both sides are made up of Creek. The one side, and it's the, I'll start with the one what most people have heard of, the Red Sticks, right? And so, it, so you can hear this sometimes called the Red Stick War. And the Red Sticks were seen as the, quote unquote, instigators of the war, meaning they're the people who maybe were the first moments of violence. And because of that, they were seen as the people who raised the, quote, red stick of war, which is why they are called the red sticks. And, and that's a traditional kind of uh, weapon, a symbol of war, uh, but also kind of to say that you're raising the red stick w- is to say, I am declaring war. People call them the instigators because they're the group who started the violence. I think that sometimes that can be kind of unfair because it makes it place blame almost. Mm-hmm. But who the red sticks are. These are the people who are upset with how changes are happening. Um, this includes everyone from kind of the prophets who want to kind of get rid of any influence of the United States or Europeans, any white influence out of Creek society, out of their culture, out of their politics. Uh, beyond that, they, they want to just get white people away from them, like move them away get back that territory land and kind of revert back to a traditional lifestyle. Um, to what degree that is, historians, archaeologists all have disagreements about that. Um, some things like metal tools, they may still want to use metal tools. They, you see red sticks still using guns and things like that. But they want those kind of um, those forces that are tearing apart the society. They want those to be gone. And so you have uh, for the, the, the red sticks... Not everybody is joining the Red Stick cause because of religious reasons. Some people are choosing it because they don't like how the National Council is acting. They don't like how uh, some economic concerns, things like that. And so it's it's not that every one person is joining for the same reason, but they all agree that the United States is having a bad influence on Creek society. And their question is, now what are we going to do about it? And so they are kind of fighting for a future where they could see defending Creek sovereignty, defending Creek culture, Creek society, and ousting U.S. influence from Creek society in hopes that they could protect what is traditional, what is Creek by their definition. So who's the other side? Um, And we have a hard time sometimes naming the other side. Uh, And you'll sometimes hear people call the other side the white sticks. Um, That is historically inaccurate. I believe that that phrase was first kind of used by a historian because they were thinking of the multi system, red towns, white towns, uh, that balance between red and white. Uh, so if one side is the red stick, the other side would be the white stick. Um, but like I said, the red stick is alluding to the red stick of war. White is a color of peace, and you wouldn't you wouldn't bring a stick to a peace 
uh, negotiation, you would bring something like a white feather or something of that nature. And so they're not the white sticks. So some other people call them the friendly creeks. That's also problematic because they are called that because this is the side that does eventually ally with the U.S. and the United States were calling them friendly. That makes it sound like the red sticks are evil or mean or bad, and that's not the case. They have just one point of view. So what do we call this group of people? I call them the National Creeks, and I call them that because these are the Creeks who are aligning with the National Creek Council. They're aligning with that notion of creating a Creek nation, of adopting things like livestock and cotton and plow agriculture, and um, they are aligning with staying in a relationship with the United States to whatever degree they think that the United States is not necessarily the, maybe not the best influence, but they think that it is a necessary relationship. They see aligning with the United States as the best case for survival. So if you stay with the United States, you can survive with them. They also are usually not always, but frequently people who have a lot of property and with the red stick cause they want you to get rid of that property and these people want to keep their property mm-hmm. keep things like cows and their cotton fields and their homes and things like that so you have kind of both a personal reason for joining the national creeks which is um, maybe your self-interest of your property and protection of your family assets you also have a larger kind of goal of saying this is the best option so in the end you have two sides who are arguing what is the best future for the creek. I wonder if there's another dimension to it um, that uh, the non-red sticks, you know, many of them came to realize that you can't go back. That once change happens, That's what you I was cannot return. Yes. I think they may have seen like, hey, the United States government is here to stay. So either we can have this all out war with them or we can just be what they want. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a sad fact. Like, you know, they were like kind of being like, okay, we'll give up some parts of our life, but. Well, you know, that, that change had been incorporated into their lives mm-hmm. for so many years yeah. that again, that's, that's part of how they knew the existence to be, to have trade goods, to have a relationship mm-hmm. with these Americans. And you see, because by this time it is the Americans, the British and, yeah. and French influence are minimal. Mm-hmm. I think the Spanish mm-hmm. had a little bit of influence coming out of Pensacola, but not much. But by this point, they are... Pretty much, almost entirely. They've given, yeah, they they I mean, they they have. There's a treaty at early 1800s or the end of the seven uh, end of the 1700s, where essentially they're giving up most of uh, the Panhandle and the areas right. to U.S. Yeah. Um, control. Yeah, yeah pretty so, much all they're wanting is a port in Pensacola exactly, and exactly. maybe New Orleans. What they had, and so there, but. I think y'all both have hit on a, an excellent point that. There's a degree with the National Creeks that you're looking at the question of what are our options? Okay, we break an alliance with the U.S., we start attacking Georgians and and Tennesseans, and 
Mississippians over and the Mississippi territory, or we could, we could start attacking them. But what's that going to do for us? Mm-hmm. How is that going to end well for us? Um, and, and you have this kind of, um, question of, I think in the back of everyone's mind, they know that the options at the beginning were assimilation or removal. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's that you're kind of, for a lot of them, there's the question of what is the best option? Yeah. And, and they see it is a necessary evil to be aligned with the United States. Well, I think too much is, you know, one of the things that happened is you saw that shift in balance of power mm-hmm. that early on the Creeks had the power when they were negotiating and making alliances with the, you know, British, Spanish and mm-hmm. French. And they were the ones that uh, was being catered to that they wanted. At this point, the power has shifted that the numbers are no longer in the creek's favor. Mm -hmm. That now the Americans have their larger numbers. That going to war against this larger country would not do well. And another huge change is that if you think about, you know, the geography of it, before you had, you know, you had very small... French influence, you know, in what is New Orleans, kind of a mobile area. Mm -hmm. Uh, The French were never very, they didn't have a lot of population, like actual French people here in the area. Uh, They were kind of just more of like forts and kind of, uh, you know, things like that. And and the Spanish were, you know, in what is now present day Florida mostly, but again, not as much huge influence. The biggest population centers were on the Eastern coast. So you have a lot of buffer between them and the Mm -hmm. Creek. Now here you are, and another huge reason the Federal Road was so kind of anxiety-producing is you have Georgians increasingly, you know, encroaching on uh, the eastern border. You have, you know, the Tennesseans coming in on the northern border. You have the Mississippi Territory coming in on the western border. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, just in a very physical way, the creek are surrounded right. yeah. by white States, territories, settlers, however you want to phrase it, like they are now kind of in many ways surrounded. And that is one of the reasons that creates anxiety for the red sticks is all of a sudden that power dynamic has shifted. The United States is not this colonial power who the power base is all the way across the ocean. Their power base is right here. And geographically we're being like surrounded and culturally things are changing and so for them, th- this is almost like a last ditch effort. So the red sticks, like this is a last ditch effort. And it's not just the red sticks or, or the creek that are doing this. It's also, again, like the Shawnee, they're planning a, a similar kind of a war uh, in the north. And, and, and so for them, this is like, this is it. This is the Hail Mary. We need to get rid of this influence now or we will be eliminated. Yeah. For the National Creek side, you have... Are we really sure we want to start this war? I don't know if we're going to be able to fight this war. I don't think that we're going to survive this. If we attack now, if we did this now, we can't survive this. And so it's this tension over where are you going to go with it? How are you going to handle it? And and each side has self-interest in it, larger interest in it, um, in when the outcome um, and, and it's this whole complex, complicated moment. And, and, and that's why it's hard to say, you know, a lot of people look back and say, oh, this side was right or this side was wrong. Mm-hmm. 
both sides were right and both sides were wrong. It was a question. It was one of the most impossible questions. And both answers had a sacrifice. And both answers ultimately could lead to destruction. And so it was, that's why it becomes this civil war, uh, because it is who is going to make this decision and how, what is the decision going to be? Most Creeks might not have chosen either side, right? <laughs> We're talking about these two sides, like everyone immediately divided down. Some Creeks might have been like, hey, we just want to live our life. Like, you know, yeah. don't make us decide. But by not deciding, they may have become the victim of violence or become a victim of the war. But a majority of people aren't necessarily, you know, extreme one way or the extreme other. Extreme one way or the other. And, like, kind of with this, going kind of back towards the name part, mm-hmm. in um, some sense, they'll, like, describe the red sticks as being the upper creeks and the white sticks being lower creeks. Is that like a true representation of this or it had no north and south type yeah, description? It, there, I mean, you can, it's how people generally see like um, geographically more red sticks came from the upper creek side and more of the uh, national council came from the lower creek side. So just kind of like some, but it, that's not a, hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. There could have been upper creeks who were national councils and lower creeks who are red sticks. It's, it's hard because it's people want to kind of try to find the one thing that separates, separates or the one reason that people chose one side or the other, but the, it was an individual choice on an individual mm-hmm. level. And yes, there could have been some geographic, because it might've been that towns, whole towns might've done, or it might've been that the Miko decided of that town and whether or not everyone in that town agreed that was how that town, you know, just was going to go into war. Like that, that was now a red stick town, right? Like that's not necessarily mean that every person who was in that town agreed with it. So that's where it kind of becomes complicated, but you can see that a lot of, a lot of Alabama, a lot of uh, upper Creek were red sticks, but there were also a lot of Alabama and some of the more famous that we are some of the more famous people in the Tinsel were Alabama Mm -hmm. and they were not necessarily red sticks. So families were divided on this issue um, and towns and it was a civil war in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to explain Moving on from that, I know we briefly mentioned the mixed blood mm-hmm. of the Creeks, but I, in history we see a lot more of the red sticks Creeks being mixed blood. It was that, like what is that? Can you explain that a little bit better for us? Well, so this kind of goes back to, like I was saying, people have wanted to try to figure out, like, why one side was one, one side was the other. And sometimes they try to use race as a reason. Maybe were more people who had European ancestry on the side for the United States, and, or were they this? And it, it goes down to that it wasn't a, a racial issue. It, it was a cultural issue. It was a political issue social, all of these things. And so it didn't necessarily mean that if you had European ancestry, you weren't automatically going to be on the National Creek side or automatically on the Red Stick side. Um, Some of the probably more famous Red Stick leaders, William Weatherford, Josiah Francis, some of the first people people think of when they think of the Red Sticks, they were of mixed ancestry. But it was, again, individual reasons maybe why they chose it. Uh, Josiah Francis or Hills Haljo, he was a prophet. So he was definitely more of the uh, religious part of um, the movement. So he, he kind of believed in that. 
William Weatherford, there's always like a question because a lot of his family, <laughs> most of his family were on the National Creek side. Um, so why did he, and historians have spent so many pages trying to figure out why he chose the red stick side. Of course, you'll have his family later on writing things, everything from his wife was held hostage, so he was forced, or he was this or that. He, something about the red stick cause spoke to him. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was religion. Maybe he didn't like how the National Council was handling things. Maybe he disagreed with how certain things were handled. Maybe he just thought this was the best attempt. We don't 100% know. He never explained his reasons of why he chose the, the red stick cause. We only have his family's attempts later to try to excuse him in a way. I, uh, I, I like that word, excuse, because, you know, I heard about the accounts well his wife was being held hostage mm-hmm. but I think there's been instance where as pointed out he had plenty of opportunities to rescue her she had opportunities not to be so so again I agree with you I think there's something individually going on with William Weatherford mm-hmm. you know because all of his families virtually all of him all of them, did not join the Red State. Exactly. Uh, become a part of them. And so you, you have it to then... Something that something, appealed to him. Something that appealed to him. And and I wish, you know, it's it's every historian's wish that they could either go back and interview <laughs> some of these people and just be like, what are you thinking? Just tell me. Or that they would write it down. Like the best thing ever is when you get someone who writes down like, my reasons for doing this were X. Mm-hmm. That's that moment where you're like, this is glorious and beautiful. It happens almost never though. <laughs> um, and yeah. so it's this moment where... He is one of the most like enigmatic uh, yeah, figures. Enigma is, is what comes, yeah, he he does this, and he he is all in on on every battle that he is in. He is a part of it. Mm-hmm. He's also very upfront when he surrenders to Jackson, and then afterwards he lives a very quiet life of a farmer in Baldwin County. And so his entire, you yeah. know, his entire story is this kind of question. It points, though, that it's not a simple answer. It's yeah. like there's, there's no simple answer as to why someone chose one side. Mm-hmm. I think that for William Weatherford, maybe he saw it as a way to try to he, – he saw that either the Red Stick cause or some person in the Red Sticks were – good for the future of the creek, that maybe this was the best way to try to handle it. I think that he wanted to do what was best in his mind for the creek people and maybe being a part of the red stick cause, or at least being a kind of warrior of that, especially a leader in some of the battles. Maybe he could help mitigate the violence. Maybe he could help. Well, there's, there's again, uh, you know, listening to you and trying to to think what would have been his reasoning. You know, and again, there's all kinds of speculation. The only possibility is he may have had relatives in yeah. there that he felt an obligation to help and protect or help exactly. and assist. And something I find really interesting um, with him in particular is there's also evidence that even as a red stick, he still protected his family who 
were not red sticks. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it could have also been, it it might've been that it was that he was protecting someone who was in the red stick cause. He might've joined to help with that. It may have also just been that he, he believed in it, but it didn't allow him. He did not turn against his family who wasn't a part of the cause. There's, there's instances where he protected them, either getting them out from somewhere or even protecting their property after Fort Mims. He goes and makes sure that his brother's property is not destroyed. You have kind of this, Again, even within the war, either that he is split on how he's how it's being handled. Maybe he believes in the cause, but he does not want he doesn't want the violence. It's almost but, like you know, again thinking that's poss- again a possibility is that he has has a belief in, like you say, helping and assisting the the people mm-hmm. and not the cause. Exactly. That is more of an individual commitment to individuals rather than a commitment to an ideal. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And also on the flip side of this, because like I said, so if, if it's not a racial thing, there's also, you know, quote unquote, full-blooded Creeks who are on the national Creek side, cool. right? So yeah. that's the other thing is that like, that's where you really trying to figure out why people chose which side they did. It would have to be individual basis. So you have a lot of William Weatherford's family come out and, and they just don't agree with, the violence of the red sticks. They don't agree with, they don't want to, some outright say they didn't want to get rid of their property. And that was one of the things the red sticks wanted you to do was destroy your property, give it over to the cause, like, you know, however X, Y, Z reason. And they did not want to do that. Um, and some just didn't agree with the outcome of, of they, they, they thought that the Alliance of the United States either was necessary or was beneficial or to whatever degree they didn't actually agree with it. So they were all very open with why they didn't choose to join. We just don't understand hundred percent why Weatherford yeah. and probably chose the opposite. Yeah. One of those unknown documents you've got to find. <laughs> it's, just one, it's hidden somewhere. Yeah, it's it's got to be hidden somewhere. It's in somewhere. <laughs> but kind of circling all of this back to Porch Creek history. Yes. Who were some of like the direct Porch Creek ancestors that were involved in the Creek War? Are there any records of that or knowledge exactly? Yes. So in the Tensaw region in general, and and um, I don't want to I don't want to speak for who might be a direct ancestor mm-hmm. because I, I have not done all the genealogy for every person that, who I have studied all the way to the end. But a lot of people in the Tensaw, it's well documented. Um, how they either worked within the war, what how they um, how they either gotten involved with it or how they stayed out of it, uh, what their roles were. But also, the Tinsaw was a region where um, a lot of activity was happening that resulted in bringing the United States into the war. So it, it becomes a very central place for understanding how the war expands beyond a civil war into a war where the United States is directly involved. And they, of course, they align with the national Creeks um, because it would not make much sense for the United States to align with the red sticks who don't want them around. Um, But uh, some of the porch ancestors were actually involved in those discussions and uh, involved with talking to territorial um, kind of agents and governors about, about us involvement. And what I mean by that is uh, probably two of the, more famous porch ancestors are Sam Manack and Lynn McGee. And both of them both tell stories of 
the causes of the war, of how the U.S. got involved in the war, but also were very active in the war. And because of their activity, we know more about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of their alliance with eventually the United States, um, more of their records show up in um, federal records or even uh, territorial records of the area. So what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynn McGee, uh, he is someone who, um, years before the war, when I say it by like showing the tension that's growing, he, when he first came down to the Tensaw, was working with Dixon Bailey uh, at Bailey's Ferry. So this was a part of the Federal Road. It was to be able to get people across the river. And it was frequently businesses like that. Creeks would own them and they would work them and they would make profit off of it. So white settlers who came through, or even creeks who came through, they would pay to use uh, the ferry or pay the tavern or things like that to kind of be able to um, get things they needed on their journey. And while they were down there, you, you see some tension growing with the interior towns that are um, that are still wondering where these people fit in. So you see the uh, Miko of Kusada, came down to the ferry and he was demanding taxes saying, Hey, um, we demand that you give us something for this ferry. And when he gets there, it's Lynn McGee who's working it. And he's thinking, I mean, this is technically Dixon Bailey's ferry. I can't give you anything. And kind of trying to diffuse the situation. They end up attacking him and he almost dies in that instance because uh, they're just attacking him for his, his insolence. Um, and then you have him sending off another worker who was an enslaved worker to get Dixon Bailey. Dixon Bailey shows up with a bunch of other people. They, they are able to get the warriors off of Lynn McGee, but it shows this tension, right? This growing tension between where is Dixon Bailey's ferry fit into the larger economy? Is he supposed to be paying taxes back to a town? Is he supposed to be doing something with this? Like whose land is this that they're operating on? And and while Lynn McGee is not, you know, the, the owner of that ferry, he's involved in that entire altercation. From that, he then goes and eventually is able to get enough to get some farmland. And he has some that at the very beginning of the Creek War, he is starting to kind of establish himself in the Tinsaw area, but um, that makes him a target. So as the Red Sticks are kind of coming through the area, they see kind of his property as an affront to their cause. They attack his property. They attack other people's property. And because of that, that creates some of the antagonism of why Lynn McGee would then maybe choose to go with the National Creek side. Yeah, so, I mean, and I think at that point, um, you know, the the path was set for Lynn McGee mm-hmm. because, as you mentioned, some of the things I've seen is that probably Lynn's farmstead was one of the first casualties mm-hmm. of that, uh, that Creek War. Mm-hmm. His farmstead, along with some of Sam Manac's property. Uh, Joseph Cornell's uh, was another right there near McGee, uh-huh. and his was also attacked. Yeah, that was uh, even before Birdcorn Creek. Mm-hmm. So it was one of the first thing, and after that, Lynn had almost had no choice but exactly. to defend himself, his property, and his way of life. And that's where, similarly, like you just said, Sam and Ack, same kind of deal. He had he owned a tavern along Federal Road. He also had a farm, kind of off from it, and and he was his sisters chose the Red Stick side. 
And so you have like his sisters actively joining the Red Sticks. They all show up to his property and he gives his deposition to um, Mississippi Territory that they show up at his property and they say, hey, we want you to join the cause and you need to, you know, give us some of your assets to the cause, but also destroy your other property. And essentially are trying to like maybe intimidate him to join from his perspective. They're trying to intimidate him to join. He chooses not to. His property is then destroyed. Um, Things like some of his enslaved laborers, um, cattle, horses, and things like that are stolen from the property. Um, So not only is it destroyed, things are taken from him. And so he sees this as, again, like they're building up kind of a case. And what's happening is people who are living in the Mississippi Territory, white settlers living in the Mississippi Territory, are starting to get really anxious about the Red Sticks because... While they haven't attacked them yet, they think it's almost inevitable because the cause is saying to attack, you know, white people. They're they're thinking they're going to start coming to us, and they have killed white settlers outside of it, but not necessarily in that one little community. Mm-hmm. And so they're starting to try to figure out like, is this happening? So they're using the testimonies of uh, Manac and Joseph Cornell's and Lynn McGee. Um, even David Tate coming in and saying, okay, look, all of these people are seeing property destruction, attacks, things like that happening. It feels inevitable that it's going to expand and spread. Well, one of the things, too, that's just occurred is that you you hear the focus of, on uh, the Creek War mm-hmm. and, and uh, that rebellion, that activity there. But at the same time, you also hear accounts you know, from Tecumseh and others that there were people talking with the the Choctaw, mm-hmm. talking with the Chickasaw, yes. talking with the Seminole. Yes. So that type of action and activity is being instigated in the surrounding tribes, too, and I wonder how much of that we hear so much about the Creek War. Mm-hmm. How much is there to know about the Choctaw and yes. what was happening in Mississippi? Mm-hmm. Was there a similar feeling of discontent or uneasiness? There is, as far as I know. Now, take for granted that I am, uh, I study the Creek, so. That, <laughs> I understand. And that is, and that is uh, so this is uh, purely by, um, uh, you know, Frequently, I get asked different things uh, about other you know, nations. Heard of and, and 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 my my always my fear is I don't know. I focus so much on the Creeks. What if <laughs> what if the Choctaw were doing something? What I have always kind of seen Seminole obviously are definitely getting similar pressures, and the Seminole War is a real thing that happens mm-hmm. almost immediately. It's, I think a little bit overlapped, if not just immediately after the Creek War. And so that is definitely something happening with the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and even the Cherokee. Yes, there is some discontent. There are definitely individuals who are, but it's not the same level of discontent that the Red Sticks have. And in fact, many of the surrounding um, tribes, they actually send people to help the United States. Once the United States gets involved in the war, they have Cherokee allies. Um, right. at, at Horseshoe and, Ch- and, Choctaw, and Choctaw, Choctaw and Chickasaw allies and at Horseshoe Bend, I think it, I believe it was, um, Pushmataha. but it was some Cherokee, um, Cherokee warriors who were the ones who were swimming across to get the mm-hmm. canoes and bring it back so that 
white troops could get across uh, Horseshoe Bend, um, because the big part of that is that, yes, there was an attack happening at the barricade, but there were people sneaking in on the other side to get uh, to attack from behind. And I believe it was uh, a Cherokee scout who crossed, uh, swam over, got a canoe, brought it back so they could bring multiple people across at a time. And so... Yeah, what I was trying to, you know, trying to understand and given that is because this was a civil war, because it was creek against creek, Mm -hmm. and yes, I know that some of the nationalist creeks, I like that term, (laughs) invited the surrounding states and the federal troops in for protection. Mm Mm-hmm. But you also had the other surrounding tribes coming in to assist. And were they coming in because they were seeing perhaps the same type of pressure coming, beginning to grow seed in their area? If they can mm-hmm. put it down here, it won't grow in their I think territory. There could definitely be, you know, that could be a definite reason for why they would want to join in is that, like you said, if you, if you end, if you cut the snake, the head of the snake off, then maybe it'll, it'll, it'll end here. Uh Um, another reason to join though, is to make it abundantly clear to the United States. You're not involved in this. Not only are you not involved, you're helping the United States. So please don't come after us. That's kind of what I was thinking the whole time you were telling the story. Like I'm just picturing in my head, like, you know, they may throw, a, they may have some of these similar beliefs, yeah. maybe not as extreme as the Red Six, but let's throw a little bit of the blame off of us or a little bit and go full on, like nip it in the butt. So maybe they were just hoping like this would stop and they could be left alone yeah. in a sense. And I think that the fears, I think fears of the United States is definitely the, yes, there are people who are in the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, indefinitely Seminole, who are seeing a lot of the same things and feeling a lot of these same things. And I think that you're right that one way for their leaders to control that impulse is to say, let's not do this. Look at what the Creek are doing. Like, let's go handle that and mm-hmm. deal with that and see what will happen. If, right. you, if you revolt, see what will happen. Um, but I think it's also a way to make it like you were abundantly clear to the United States, it's not us. Don't like it's them. The Creek are doing it. It's not us. Um, and allying with the United States could potentially benefit them. Well, I, I, I'm trying to figure. You know, I, I think there's had to be something more different, more to it than just wanting to maintain an alliance with the United States. You know, because the Choctaw. You know, I view them. And their situation as being, as we talk, sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. They make their decision of whether they want to participate, whether they want to provide and call up. They also people. They got they got things from the United States for helping. Yeah. So they were also they got a reward for helping as well. Okay. Um, so in like the negotiations afterwards, they are given you know money, things like that as kind of a medal. Likewise with the Cherokee. We're saying Choctaw, but the Cherokee yeah, also yeah. provided too. And so it, it's, it's, and I don't want to make it sound like it is entirely like 
it makes it sound so. Um, but, you know, trying to what compelled this yeah, nation to assist to assist. And I think I think that it's again it's it's just Put like down that the was, civil war of another nation. Yeah. It, I think it could be multiple like multiple reasons. First off, if there's if the US is gonna send more troops in here that could potentially bleed over into Choctaw territory, Chickasaw, Cherokee yeah. territory, right? So the fighting could bleed over into your area and some of your mm-hmm. people could get killed. So containing it to Creek territory is maybe gonna help you with that. Mm-hmm. I think that there could also be a a fear of trying to contain the sentiment from spreading in your own, uh, your own area and saying like, you know, make an example of the Creek so that your people don't also do that. Um, I think that there is, it's not just a matter of trying to stay, maintain a balance with the United States. You don't want to be, they don't want it to be that they get like hurt from it. Like they don't, they don't want to like, Splash back and say like, Mississippi Territory say all Native Americans did this. Let's take away from the Chickasaw and Choctaw too. They want to be very clear. We this, this, don't punish us for this. Yeah. But they also get maybe some benefits, extra this, extra that. Maybe some territory. Maybe something is handed over. Maybe if there's a dispute in territory, the Cherokee are going to get it over the creek. Um, things like that. And so you can. There is also. It's not just a net neutral. There could also be a benefit to helping the United States. And, I, and what I was trying to say before is it feels so like um, unfeeling or mm-hmm. or kind of like calculated to say that. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a complex amount of reasons why oh, yeah. they would join in. And I think it's a little bit of all of those reasons. Right. I think that it's it's a little bit of saying potentially protect our people by like, you know, like, nipping this in the bud, either both from this war, if this war keeps expanding out mm-hmm. and more and more troops are coming, but also making it clear, you don't come to ours, like stay away from us. Like we're not, mm-hmm. we're not the red sticks. Don't come to us. Because yeah. there's the fear that. Yeah. That, a bad joke yeah. came to mind when yeah. I was hearing that. <laughs> that, you know, maybe the Choctaw and Cherokee was saying, Hey, since we all look alike, maybe we better make a distinction. Right, like, We're not the same. It, there's a degree to where the Mississippi militia might just say, well, if they're fighting, maybe they're fighting over here too. We'll go ahead and just, yeah, you know, exactly. come after everybody. So it was a way to protect themselves, a way to protect both physically and also in the future to make sure that if the U.S. was going to win, it was going to be a bad People were going to get punished, right? And there's that kind of notion, like, well, if you <laughs> right? Yeah. It's kind of crazy, like, sitting here and think, like, you know, during this Creek War, you know, majority of these other tribes were siding with the United States and the White Sticks and... Provided us. Yeah. And then, you know, you first sat a, a few years later and it's, they're getting sent to Oklahoma. Yep. It's very... And I think... Well, very haunting, actually, kind of. It, it, it is very... Very much, uh, you know, uh, disconcerting, I guess, is uh, what did happen that exactly what you said. These mm-hmm. tribes were providing assistance uh, to this this effort. And the uh, Choctaw, you know, keeps saying them, but they the were the first removed. Yep. They were the first removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they provided a great deal of assistance to Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the sayings I've heard of, but to push Matahal, that when he was standing beside 
Andrew Jackson at Horseshoe Bend. If he knew the future, he would. Andrew Jackson wouldn't have been alive. Oh, yeah. No, and that's, I mean, even, and, and we're going to get to, you know, the the results. We're going to talk about that in a second. But even the National Creeks were punished mm-hmm. at the end of the war. More so. More so. And that's the thing is that, like, in the end of this, like, It's one of the hard parts, and again, it's the teleological, like looking back, and, and you can see things, but you have this moment where, in that moment, it made the best sense, made the most sense or logic for them to, for Cherokee and Chickasaw and Choctaw to assist. And there were also some Cherokee, Chickasaw and Choctaw, who might have come in and been fighting with the Red Sticks, right? And mm-hmm. there were Red Sticks who then went down to the Seminole War right. and were fighting uh, with the Seminole, right? So, like, it's all complicated. It's not one, just one thing, but while kind of more officially those groups uh, aligned with the national creeks and the U S they didn't know, they didn't know that within their own generation, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered Right. that in the end, something, one thing that the Creek war and the Seminole war did and the, the wars with the, the Shawnee, it did is it it made a new generation of Americans believe that assimilation was impossible and removal was the only option. Mm-hmm. And so as for, you know, how, how the tinsel is and, and the, the ancestors either who ones who we know are directly ancestors and those who may be ancestors, how they were a part of it is like I said, some of those early skirmishes and battles and, 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 massacres were in that area. And so, um, and they also, many of them, including Manac and McGee, they joined the national Creek side for various reasons, different personal, larger reasons. Um, they became guides for a lot of the U S troops when they uh, aligned with the U S militia who came in, they became guides for them, leading them to different places, helping them know the terrain. Um, they likely became friends with some of the people who they served with. And so it's a hard kind of moment when you, when you can kind of realize that, that, that they became friends with some of these people. And then ultimately they were lumped together as the same as the red sticks as the enemy. Um, and so for, for, and I, I think I've danced around the, the issue. I don't know if we're going to talk about Fort Mims because that's another big thing that happens in that area. Uh, something to point out that's, that's people always point to that as like this kind of turn. This is a turning point because when more U S people get more involved, yeah, it was yeah. after Fort it was after Mims, Fort Mims so that you US have really got actively like, involved in Mississippi territory. Now, what I will say is that most people want to talk about Fort Mims. You have to always point out, and you've already mentioned it, Burnt Corn Creek happens before Fort Mims. Right. And that's actually a group of uh, Mississippi, you know, territorial people with creeks who go and attack a group of red sticks. So they were involved, even though even though there was no kind of official militia really involved in, in the fighting at that time, they go and attack a group of red sticks. Fort Mims is a retaliation, almost directly, because one of the creeks who was leading was Dixon Bailey, that person I was talking about who owned the ferry and worked with Lynn McGee. He was the person who was really leading some of the Mississippi Mississippians, Mississippi, not to use that term because it's a, it's hard because Mississippians mean something <laughs> right. uh, in a time period, but the people who were living in the Mississippi territory, um, 
they uh, he was leading them to where the Red Six would be at Burnt Corn, and they attacked Fort Mims because that's where Dixon Bailey is. And so Fort Mims was chosen for a specific reason, but because they killed both Creek and uh, U.S. citizens, that becomes the rallying cry for why the U.S. should be involved. Um, and that's really what Andrew Jackson uses as his call to bring Tennessee militia in. Yeah. And from there, you have direct involvement by Tennessee, Georgia, and Mississippi militias yeah. coming in. That's often what I thought Fort Mims was just the excuse. Oh, yes. The excuse to come in. And again, you've got Andrew Jackson and his mindset that, you know, let's go in and, um, again, the reason they get lands or get more concessions mm -hmm. from the Creeks and uh, an excuse to invade. Yes. Invade the Creek territory. Uh, and that also thought, too, that uh, Fort Mims was retaliation for Burke Corn Creek. Yes. Because, like I said, mm -hmm. Dixon Bailey was very prominent in that Burke Corn yes. battle. And um, the Red Sticks lost guns and ammunition that they needed for their cause and for what they were going to do. And you know, let's get back with the person who took this from us, yeah. which was Dixon Bailey. Yeah. And, and part of what, you know, again, mentioned, but it's not always mentioned much. Uh, what I've seen on some accounts, a lot of the people there around Boatyard Lake were Europeans. Mm -hmm. And the Boatyard Lake is very definitely in Creek territory. Mm -hmm. But uh, for whatever reason, permits that supposedly to have, but there was a good um, settlement, a larger settlement of white settlers mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Yes. At, at uh, Boatyard, Tennessee area. So whenever word got back again that white people were being killed by the Creeks, that became the excuse for... Andrew Jackson and the Mississippi and Tennessee militia to come in. Exactly. And the, another important thing that I, I haven't mentioned until this point is that this is all happening under the backdrop of the War of 1812. Right. Right. So, so in this larger story of, of like world history and, and, and um, the War of 1812 is happening, the British and the United States are fighting. And so for Andrew Jackson and for people in this area, they're focusing on this, like, what if the Red Sticks are also working for the British? And, like, oh, they're wow. going to start attacking us, and it's going to be this. And there's a whole conspiracy yeah. of European involvement through the creek and using this as a way to kind of weaken um, this kind of moment. And so they're really just looking for a reason to get involved. Right. They, they want to be involved mm -hmm. from the get-go. Oh, yeah. And so um, – and that was the whole, the whole, the whole Burt Corn Creek was the conspiracy that the Spanish are funding the Red Sticks and it's because the British are doing this and it's all happening. And, and so it was the, the whole kind of anxiety over that is why they went. And, and so Fort Mims was, like you said, it was just, it was just the excuse. They were already ready to go. They just needed a reason of why. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't just the National Creeks. They were, asking like, like, Hey, we need some help. Can you help us? And yeah. they were helping them at first, like maybe with supplies and things like that. Mm -hmm. This gave them a, a more direct reason because in the larger sense, 
there is already a war going on, so lots of militia aren't necessarily going to deploy for this. But all of a sudden, now there's a reason. There's a direct right. reason. Yeah, that was a reason that's there. And, to go. And you had, you know, other things that contributed. The letter that they had to pick up guns and supplies mm-hmm. at Pensacola came from the British. Exactly. Because there was a Panton and Leslie company, and, and the companies that were in Pensacola were actually British trading companies. Because, mm-hmm. this goes back a little bit to McGillivray, Spanish were not known for some of their uh, the quality of their goods. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so when McGillivray, way back, when he was working with the Spanish in Pensacola, and, and uh, he was like, okay, we want to ally with you politically, but we would like <laughs> you to allow British traders to give us the more superior British goods uh-huh. <laughs> that we can no longer get because the United States has kicked them out. Uh-huh. So bring that here. So actually it was like, it was a it was Spanish Pensacola, British trading company. It made the Tennesseans, Georgians and Mississippians very anxious yeah. that uh, they were having that close contact with. Uh, yeah. Cause you had the British and the unknown Spanish. Yeah. They're yes, right there yes. at their door. It kind of brings another level to an already like complicated situation with the Creek war. And then you add in like, Oh, the Spanish and the, British are still kind of close by, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it just adds another level of like, I like the words you've been using, anxiety for exactly. everybody in this area. <laughs> everyone, that's what like, it's like that moment, don't make an anxious decision, like everyone's just yeah. high, high on anxiety right oh, now right. And, and everyone's just waiting for the other side to do it. And burnt corn was, was, this, was the, you know, was, was a decision that they made and Fort Mims was in some ways seen as a if you're talking about that, you know, clan retribution, it was like, you attacked us, we attack you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of, in some ways, changed the nature and the tide of the war. Because you, you had battles before, um, but now you have the Tennessee militia coming in and directly going to red stick towns or strongholds. And mm-hmm. um, After that, they moved it, you know, up into the, the Major Creek mm-hmm. uh, Nation. Yes. Um, and it's also something you start seeing in, when the battle, just because of just how the, the nature of it happens and the, the scale happens and how the tide kind of changes for the red sticks, the casualties that are happening for the red sticks also keep increasing more and more and more each. Yeah. It feels like every battle more and more um, people are, are, are dying and, and, it's not just, you know, when we talk about the casualties in these places, it's not just warriors who are dying. They're sometimes killing entire encampments, which includes women and children, mm-hmm. um, and kind of creating a lot of destruction. So kind of to wrap up this time period, how did the Creek War end and what were the results of it? So as we mentioned earlier, the Horseshoe Bend is really the last battle of the Creek War, and it was one of the last really big strongholds of um, the Red Sticks. I mean, it doesn't mean that the Red Sticks go away immediately after the Horseshoe Bend, but it's kind of seen as this huge defeat for them that kind of really hurts the cause and and, and hurts um, their chances in Creek territory. It's 
in what is now Lee County, Alabama. And they, they created Stonehole there because it seemed like a really good strategic point. They had a curve in the river, so that helped create a boundary behind them. They built this really uh, amazing fortification in front of it um, that was going to help protect them. And when I say Stronghold, again, there are it's an encampment. There are families here as well as the warriors, not just a, a warrior encampment. It is um, a lot of people who are joining the Red Stick cause. They're here. And that battle, um, you have one kind of group coming towards the fortification, distracting them from that area. And then you have another kind of group coming up behind uh, on the river, so on the bend of the river. And like I said, you have Cherokee scouts going in there, swimming across the river, getting a canoe, bringing it back so that then more and more people can come behind. So then you have them surrounded. Um, and it is much like we call the Sometimes we call Fort Mims the Battle of Fort Mims, and then we also call it a massacre. I would say that's a very similar way to call Horseshoe Bend. It's the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, but in some ways it kind of turns into a massacre as hundreds of red sticks are killed. And I think only 75 of um, the Tennessee militia or or kind of Jackson's men are killed, Mm -hmm. but I believe it's over 250 red sticks are killed. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's a battle, but it, it is definitely a decisive victory for Jackson. Um, it's after the battle of course you've been, that you have William Weatherford coming to Fort Jackson and surrendering that kind of famous or infamous, if you will, scene that is told and retold in different ways. And, and again, I don't really know if any one of them is accurate and yeah. in, in, in how he came, but the fact is that he did to some degree surrender and just say, you know, we're not going to win this and I want to protect my people as much as I can. So how can we do this without having to kill every red stick? Mm -hmm. And so he then helps Jackson end the red stick cause um, as, as much as he can try to quiet it where he can. Some people are still killed. Some people are this, but Weatherford is not one of the leaders who's executed because of how he surrendered. And also because his family was a very powerful family. So Weatherford is allowed to go live with his family, uh, at the end of this, but you have this moment then where the war's over, sensibly the national creeks have won with the assistance of the United States, but it becomes that the United States gets to call the shots of what peace means because the United States got involved. They are now calling the shots of what what's happening. And Jackson in particular is the person who's negotiating this. And he makes a deal essentially that blames all of the Creeks for the war, that it was the Creeks in general who caused this and it has taken the lives of U.S. citizens and kind of disrupted um, their militias during another time of war, all this kind of, like, right? It's, just, it's all y'all's fault, is what he says. And then as payment for the United States coming in and fixing the problem, the entire Creek Nation is ceding 22 million acres, which is most of Creek territory. Mm-hmm. And this includes lands that are towns, all, whole towns, like, you know, not just one settlement here, one there. It's like multiple towns are in what is going to be the ceded territory. And they're going to have to be moved to what is going to be the new territorial boundaries, which is a much smaller portion uh, of land in uh, eastern Alabama and was now eastern Alabama and western Georgia. Um, but their territory 
not it's more than even halves. I think it, it goes down to almost like a third of what mm-hmm. it was before. And there's no there's no kind of counter to that negotiation. Now he does say, um, you know, there were some people who who were maybe because people point out, what about the people who are your allies? And he does allow that some people, if you assisted the United States in any way, in any capacity, and you can prove it, and you can prove that you had property and um, you return to that property and all these different things, then you can get an allotment of land, um, either on or near where your property was. And so that's where you start to see people trying to go back and, and, and get that property back so instead of losing it entirely. And it's all throughout um, the what will become the Mississippi Territory. You see people uh, making these, and two of those people are Sam Manack and Lynn McGee, are two people mm-hmm. who actually mm-hmm. apply to the federal government for land or property back, either for money to cover things that were destroyed and also for exact land that they lost. So Sam Manack is able to get... Uh, I believe it was $12,000 worth of um, reparations for damage damages yeah. done to his property. And then um, had land back as well. Uh, Lynn McGee takes, it takes longer for him to get his land because there was a whole moment when um, someone was squatting on his land and he had to kind of prove that he had been there. But at one point he was injured. So his brother was watching the land. And then there was a whole question of who was land it was. And you see this happening a lot to the Creeks who were returning to the Tennessee um, and, and Creeks just around that they were having to fight against white squatters taking their land. Wow. And so it became a moment of having to prove a, you had to prove you were Creek B. You had to prove that you had, helped the United States in the war. See, you had to prove that that land had belonged to you before the war. You had to have witnesses, usually white witnesses, who would act on your behalf. You had to, it was this whole process to try to get the land back. And sometimes it happened within a decade. Sometimes it took two or three decades before you got the land. But the reason that people were going for it is because to them, this is one of the reasons they had joined that 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 side is that they wanted to protect their property and that was taken away from them when Jackson made the deal that he did is it was a snub to them and because they made that uh that they were able to get that land back is one way that they were able to try to not be removed when it happened because they had that property that was in their name that couldn't be taken from them um, in the same way that the land was taken during the Indian Removal Act. Right. And so you see kind of this protection of the land and 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 wanting to keep that within the family. And so, um, and also became a haven for other people as they were trying to not be removed to come to that property and to be able to live on it um, and try to maintain their community um, even after removal. Well, I, I think actually some of this stuff, um, the started some of the ideas, you know, before removal, mm-hmm. I think it was, that, that it was people were living there in this common mm-hmm. area down in Southwest, uh, Alabama in this, this area that was no longer a part of the Creek Nation. It was no longer part of their government, their yes. land and control. But I think they had a lifestyle that they were accustomed to, which was based entirely upon living life as a Creek 
And as we know, people tend to associate with like people that understand mm -hmm. them and they understand. So I think you had these group, yeah. these people coming together uh, for the common cause, for a common belief, for a common lifestyle. And that's what uh, yeah. stayed in Southwest Alabama. And I think what you start to see there, and of course, correct me if, if I'm am I wrong, but what I've seen in looking back is that this was a community entirely in and of itself. It was both because it was cut off in some ways and many, especially in the early times, uh, right after the war, are still connected to the Creek Nation. Oh, yes, still yes, traveling yes, back. Very much so. And at post-removal, you have where they don't have that direct access to the nation uh, or to like the, you know, the nation of itself, but they are separate from the surrounding community. They've created their own community that was, like you said, forming even immediately after the Creek War. I would say are forming even before the Creek War. Right. That community was already formed. It was just kind of reclaiming that community after the Creek War. Um, and then it becomes the only community that they have after removal. Right. And so it's kind of like it, it's this long evolution of this community there of while they're still in the boundary of the Creek territory, um, they are creating a community that is in and of itself its own unique thing. Then you have after the Creek War where they're reclaiming that community that's still able to easily travel to the Creek Nation if necessary. Right. And then post-removal, the community has to become its own community right. insular because they don't have that access anymore and because they have to start protecting themselves in a different kind of way. And that's how I kind of see the community forming before the Creek War and then kind of continuing to coalesce after the war. Right. Um, and it becomes very dangerous to be living there because you are surrounded by people who don't necessarily like you. Right. Um, there's many instances after the war, William Weatherford was living in, in the area and there's many instances where you have a moment where someone's talking about wanting to kill William Weatherford and they don't realize that he's in the back of the room listening to them talk about how <laughs> if I see Billy Weatherford, I'm going to, you know, yeah. X, Y, Z because of what he did during yeah. the Creek War. So you have some people who are very antagonistic towards, mm -hmm. towards the Creek who are living in the area. Some people who tried to oust them from their property or force them off. Like right. the squatters were there because they didn't think that the Creek should be living in the area. They think that they should have had to be forced to leave. Right. And, you know, I said that, you know, see all of that happening and that you're exactly right that, after the Creek War and before removal, those those living in southwest Alabama, because it wasn't just the Tennessee mm -hmm. area, it was mm -hmm. uh, surrounding the Alabama, no, mm -hmm. near the Alabama River and other places mm -hmm. close there, that they were almost, they were like a satellite of the uh, Creek Nation. Like you said, they had contacts back and forth. They were very much a part of the Creek Nation, just not living in the uh, boundaries, mm -hmm. the new boundaries. Mm -hmm. After removal, they were separated. They became isolated. Yes. They could not maintain that full realm of Creek activities, but they maintained the realm of Creek lifestyles that they knew and could pass generations. And, and that's where I still see, you know, when I was doing research 
into the 1850s and 1860s, one of the best places to see some of the maintenance of those cultural traditions as wills, Mm -hmm. because it's one of the places where you start to see people making sure matrilineal inheritance is still there Mm -hmm. and that they're not being necessarily overt in saying how they're doing stuff, but they are kind of, you know, implying throughout the wills, like this is how it's done. You know, this is where the children are Mm going to go. This is how the property is going to be divided up. And so I kind of see this moment of, um, they can't be as, they can't be as, you know, direct as they would have been if they were still living in Creek territory because they have to work within a new system. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. They had to work in the new system, but they were still living a lifestyle that they knew the only lifestyle they knew. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And kind of maintaining that. And so that's, that's passing along to their children, continuing to try to pass it along in a way that will both keep the culture there, but also protect their family from potentially being hurt by Mm -hmm. those who would not like them for who they are. And so that's, I think the constant balance that I've seen through either oral history or through the records is that there's that constant tension between wanting to maintain the culture and identity that you have, but making sure that those who are outsiders of your community don't hurt your community. Mm-hmm. And so having to maintain that balance becomes a defining factor of the community. Right. And I, I think a lot of it was uh, they accomplished that through isolation. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a lot of it was self-imposed. Mm-hmm that uh, those living there were truly, to a large extent, self-sufficient. Yes. And did not have to have dealings of a long-term nature. Uh, These were the people that did not uh, take part in the plantation style of living, of, of farming and activities but rather maintain a Mm -hmm. self-sufficient home garden, raise a few livestock for trade, for items that you couldn't produce on your own. Mm -hmm. And uh, a group of like-minded people together. Exactly. And that's where you have, that's a, you can in many ways say that that community is one of the results of the war. So if you're asking me, what are the results? The fact that this community had to create itself as it was, was because the Creek War happened and because of the results of the Creek War. Um, because you start that moment of isolation. And even though it's not a immediate, like a, a, I don't want to say all encompassing isolation because the Creek Nation's still there mm-hmm. in the immediate moment after the war, it starts that community right. of having to be working outside of the Creek system and working within a different system and kind of creating this new lifestyle. That's not new meaning different, but new meaning um, they have to kind of redefine their terms. If you will, you know, know, same, same, same definition, but the terms are different. Right. right, (laughs) That's how I like to phrase it. But I think another huge end, sorry, another huge result of the war is one I mentioned earlier was, um, this is when you start to see a whole generation of Americans saying assimilation obviously failed because mm-hmm. the Creek war wouldn't have happened if assimilation were successful. Yeah. Right. And That's this is point. where you start to see a long road to removal. And again, I don't want to be Please. teleological, but you immediately after the war, you start to see people saying we should start removing. And then Andrew Jackson uses his experiences in the Creek war and the Seminole war, um, as part of his platform 
for in the Indian Removal Act. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, this war, it was the last ditch effort for the Red Sticks. And ultimately when they lost, um, it became a moment, a turning point for the entire the entirety of Creek history. And I think that sets a good point for our next episode, which will be mainly focusing on the Trail of Tears. So thank you so much today for talking with us. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know Mr. Larry did too. Yeah, well, I appreciate <laughs> you, the time you've spent with us. It's uh, certainly given us all ideas and food for thought and appreciate what you've had to contribute to it. Thank uh, you. As I mentioned, I liked your perspective, so I'm glad we were able to capture it. Thank you. Thank you all for inviting me. I'm very happy to to help you all as you all are um, trying to spread Creek history and, and make sure everyone knows about it. Because I think, again, it's a, to me, a very important part of all of our history is to understand Native American and, in this state, Creek history. Right. Thank you for listening to Porch Stories. This was the final part of our interview with Dr. Alex Colvin. Tune in next month to hear us discuss Lynn McGee, the first porch patriarch. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. 